Welcome to the first episode of the View Charlotte Real Estate and Entertainment Podcast. My name is Jeremy Orden, one of the partners with the Orden Writer Group at Allen Tate. So why another podcast? There's countless podcasts about everything from travel to politics to unsolved crimes. Our concept in jumping into the already cluttered podcast space was simple, to share our experience in what we know best, real estate and living in the Charlotte metropolitan area. Each week, we'll break down a topic related to real estate, share stories related to the topic, or have guests with experience in various facets of the real estate market, and then discuss something about our city that makes it unique. This could be restaurants, things to do, fun facts, or, well, virtually anything, because Charlotte is just such an amazing city with limitless opportunities. I'm really excited to start this journey because my team truly knows and loves this city. The idea of continuing to educate our clients to the real estate market so they can make the best decisions for their families is a commitment we stand behind, and hopefully each of these episodes will leave a little pearl of wisdom with our listeners. Thanks for joining us. Let's get started. For this first episode, I'm joined by one of my best friends, my business partner, and my personal unofficial therapist, Brittany Osborne. Brittany has been with the Orden Writer Group at Allen Tate since the beginning. We'll dig into Brittany's background in a future discussion. For anyone unfamiliar with Brittany, though, she's a former Charlotte Mecklenburg school teacher who's been in residential real estate for nearly a decade. In her nearly 20 years of living in Charlotte, she's lived in multiple neighborhoods in the city and is currently residing in Matthews with her family. She's a top-performing realtor in the Charlotte market whose clients have nothing but rave reviews for how knowledgeable, caring, detail-oriented, and responsive she is. Welcome, Brittany. Hi, Jeremy. Thank you so much for having me on the first podcast. I am thrilled to have you here. Today's topic is one of the most confusing subjects we have to explain when it comes to real estate, especially to buyers who are relocating from other markets. Due diligence. It's a multifaceted term that often confuses both buyers and sellers. So let's explain what due diligence is in terms of both North and South Carolina real estate, what it means for buyers. Brittany, can you get us started with a general description of due diligence? Absolutely. Um, In the most basic of terms, due diligence means the steps taken by a person to satisfy a legal requirement, especially when buying or selling something. You know, companies conduct due diligence uh, when making investments or conducting mergers by reviewing data and financials all the time. So for real estate, due diligence is specifically related to the further investigation of a property. Uh, You know, this could include home inspections, appraisals, surveys, title research, or other important details. I love that when describing due diligence, you didn't just stop at an inspection level. Completely. I think one of the most common misconceptions, especially when people have experience in other real estate markets, um, is that a home either passes or fails an inspection um, or a purchase is based around inspections. While other states have those contingencies, it's not something that exists within our state authorized contracts. It's a great point. I think most people don't understand that during a standard residential real estate transaction, we're following state guidelines and the standard offer to purchase contracts outline the terms that the parties need to follow. 
Right. Real estate is such a specialized industry and concepts of local practices are sometimes difficult for people to understand when they've come from other states or other areas. So let's discuss how this due diligence applies to our local market for home buyers. I personally love introducing the topic of due diligence by explaining the offer process. Essentially, when a buyer is presenting an offer to purchase, they're traditionally presenting three different numbers and two different dates to the seller. The first number is obviously going to be the offer price, meaning what the buyer is offering the seller for the property. The second number is the earnest money or good faith money on the property. While there's no standardized numbers and these figures can change, we typically see an earnest money deposit between like 1% and 5%, but of course market conditions and dozens of other factors can change this amount. Date number one that's presented is the requested closing date or the settlement date. The final number and date is going to be the due diligence deposit and the due diligence date. In North Carolina, due diligence deposit is a deposit that's paid directly to the seller in exchange for time to conduct the due diligence. The buyer is credited their due diligence deposit at closing. I really like that methodology and honestly, I've adopted something similar for myself. In fact, I like to describe due diligence really in terms of the due diligence period. So for example, a buyer might ask for a 30-day closing period, but a 21-day due diligence period. It would be during this negotiated time period where a buyer might conduct inspections, perform an appraisal, order a survey, or complete their final loan approval process. You mentioned inspections. This always seems to be one of the most difficult hurdles to overcome as part of the process. 100%. Um, I always say that finding a home and getting it under contract really is the easy part. You know, I tell my clients, anybody can do that. But getting a home from contract to close is where you really learn how difficult purchasing a home can be. And that's why you want an experienced agent on your side to guide you through it. Tell me more about that. So if a buyer puts a house under contract, let's just use some generic numbers. You know, a house is 500,000 and the buyer and seller agree to a 2% earnest money um, of $10,000 and a $2,000 fee uh, for due diligence um, with a 21 day due diligence period and a 35 day closing. During the 21 day period, the buyer has an inspection and the inspection report reveals, I don't know, 80 deficiencies or something like that. The buyer obviously wants everything on that list to be fixed. And the seller, of course, doesn't want to do anything. Um, You know, the seller in both North and South Carolina really is under no obligation to fix or address anything on there. The buyer, in turn, is under no obligation to actually follow through with the transaction and can terminate. You know, they can just say, you know what, there's more on this than I was anticipating. I don't feel comfortable moving forward with with this transaction. And that's fine. But should they decide that, um, you know, they can't come to an acceptable agreement, both parties really just can't come to terms and the buyer does decide to terminate, um, the seller is going to keep their due diligence fee, but they will get their earnest money back. But what happens to the $2,000 due diligence fee that the buyer paid directly to the seller? The seller is going to keep that. Um, the buyer with that uh, the example we just talked about is buying um, time from the seller, time to conduct their due diligence and negotiate anything from low appraisals or repairs. Something that my clients often discuss is what about the items on the inspection report that they ask the seller to do? Are you saying that the seller doesn't need to fix these things or credit the buyer for them? 
Exactly. The seller really is under no obligation to fix or address anything. And I, I kind of like to frame it with my buyers in terms of, hey, you know, we're going to do inspections. I'm always going to advise you to do every inspection you can because it's really an FYI for you. You want to know what you're getting and that's for you, you know, to kind of take the next steps with. In my experience, though, you know, most sellers are willing to address some items either because they just feel like it's the right thing to do um, or in order to just keep the process moving forward and get to the closing table. Have you ever encountered a buyer who asks, well, what's to prevent a seller from just putting a house under contract, collecting a due diligence fee, and then when the buyer terminates, put the house back on the market so they can just keep collecting these due diligence fees? Of course, due diligence is a really strange concept for a lot of buyers, especially if A, they've never purchased before or B, they've never, you know, purchased in North or South Carolina. Um, And I think it does go through a lot of people's minds because I have experience working with both buyers and sellers. I like to share what I know. So I set the expectation with my sellers that buyers are going to have inspections done and they're going to ask for repairs. We set that expectation from the beginning And also that nothing is ever really as is, as long as the request is somewhat reasonable and it's something they should address. We'll talk about buying a home in as-is condition in a later episode, but I always like to ask a seller when they tell me that they want to sell in as-is condition with no repairs is, you know, if somebody offered you an additional $50,000, but they want you to paint the front door a different color, would you do it? They always say yes. So... People want to sell in as-is condition due to a convenience aspect and certainly, you know, over funds and knowing for certain what they're going to get. However, for a certain dollar figure, everyone's always willing to make concessions. Absolutely. And I think it really comes down to just setting realistic expectations on both sides. And and so I like to use my experience and hopefully explain that a reasonable request can likely be addressed. However, most rational people are not willing to go through the drama of putting their home back on the market, dealing with showings, going to contract with the hopes of continuing to collect a due diligence fee and not actually go through with closing. It would be a really weird part-time job proposal to hopefully continue to you know keep putting your home on the market, under contract, just to collect that that money. It's a great point. I think we've all become so skeptical that it's really easy to get caught up in worst case scenarios and forget that a seller's goal isn't to make like $1,000. They want to make the $600,000 by selling their house. Exactly. You know, and in North Carolina, after the due diligence period ends, regardless of negotiations, should the buyer not terminate the contract, that is when their earnest money becomes hard. I'm afraid to ask this, but... <laughs> Can you explain what earnest money becoming hard is? I mean, it means that their earnest money is now vested in the contract. You know, if the buyer decides to terminate and not move forward with the transaction, that's fine. They can walk away. However, their earnest money will be retained by the seller in addition to that due diligence money that they already paid out. So the due diligence money and associated due diligence time period are really setting up certain milestones for making final decisions about moving forward with the transaction. Exactly. I like to describe it as buying time. The buyer is buying from the, you know, from the seller to conduct all of their research. They're buying time to take the house off the market so they can get as much information as possible about that house. So since we work in both North and South Carolina, and I know South Carolina has due diligence now, How is due diligence different in South Carolina than it is in North Carolina? 
Sure. You know, things used to be very different between the states. Um, you know, in North Carolina, when a contract is executed, the due diligence fee is delivered to the seller and the seller deposits it directly. And it's always been that way. But now South Carolina has made some changes and they're much more similar. Um, you know, that money is money paid to the seller in North Carolina. But in South Carolina, we now have this due diligence fee, but it's really more of a termination fee because it's only delivered to the seller when and if the buyer terminates. So you're really saying that the only big difference in the fees between North Carolina and South Carolina is when the seller receives the termination fee, either at contract or termination. That's it. So let's go into your experience, Brittany. What can you tell me about things you've experienced or discovered during due diligence? You know, again, I always go back to setting those expectations with my clients. You know, I always say, listen, you know, you're not buying a brand new home. There's going to be stuff that comes up. There's going to be things on this report that honestly we see all the time and just setting them up to to expect to see something, but guiding them through that so they're not scared when they see it. But an instance that comes to mind um, as an example is actually with new construction, because again, we always recommend getting inspections done. Um, with new construction as well. Um, and so I had clients under contract on a new construction inventory home. And upon my recommendation, they chose to have the home inspection done along with, you know, pest inspection and a radon inspection. Well, the radon, um, the radon report came back with elevated levels of radon. And this, the, uh, the builder just refused to believe that that was a possibility because they'd built multiple homes in this community. They'd never had an issue with radon before. Their radon levels never came back elevated. They were convinced that somebody had tampered with the machine, not necessarily on purpose, but that just something was off to the point where they asked us to retest. So we did another test and in fact, it was still elevated. Therefore, they had to remediate. You know, they added a, a radon remediation system. My clients were fine with it because it was being addressed. But if they would have never really taken the time to do their due diligence, they would have never known. And for those of you that don't know, radon is a, is a naturally occurring gas that's odorless and colorless. And you really don't know that it's there. And it has effects on your body down the road. It's the second leading cause of lung cancer. So this could have really impacted my client's health down the road. Um, but luckily they exercised their right to their due diligence by having these inspections and they were able to get that taken care of before they ever even moved in. I love that you used a new construction example because I think so many people think that they don't need to do research or inspections when it comes to new construction. Exactly. I have so many stories about due diligence nightmares. I mean, we should almost do an entire episode in the future on nightmare due diligence discoveries. That and writing books. We could, could do either of those things with all the stories. A book is a great idea. <laughs> I just don't know who would read it. <laughs> However, you know, one of my most recent due diligence experiences was actually on the listing side. I was working with a seller and we sold their home with like 30 different offers on the property. The offer that we selected had put in a $40,000 due diligence fee. They asked for some repairs after their inspection, and my seller was really reluctant to do anything. I was speaking with the other agent, and they expressed to me how disappointed they were that my seller wouldn't address any of the items that they thought were important on the inspection report. When they had shown so much, you know earnest enthusiasm about buying the home and winning the house in a multiple offer situation that they put up $40,000. It was really tough for me to explain that with that much money and there being multiple offers that the seller was in a position where it was now advantageous for them to not do repairs, 
because if the buyer would terminate, they would just go back on the market and they would keep the $40,000. And this agent didn't seem to understand as I explained to her that that $40,000 actually handcuffed her clients more than it helped them win the offer in the future. My clients wanted to sell the house. However, due to that large deposit and multiple offer situations, it just changed their position. So I think the point is you always need to have an advocate on your side who is experienced with these situations and can help guide you through this process. Exactly. I mean, there's so much more that we could say on this topic, but can you briefly talk to me about appraisals and how that works with due diligence? Yep. So the North Carolina contract does not have a financing financing contingency um, because of that due diligence time period. So if a buyer is getting a loan, you know, in an ideal world, they will have an appraisal performed during the due diligence period. But if, you know, hypothetically, if the appraisal comes in low, they would need to negotiate a new price, uh, come up with additional funds to bridge the appraisal or even terminate. You know, however, even if the appraisal comes in low, the due diligence fee, it's not refundable. So that really puts extra pressure on the buyer, right? Not really. You know, it's all part of the process. And from my experience, due diligence actually helps hold everybody accountable with moving forward, staying the course, progressing at an established timeline to get to that closing table. There's so much more we can continue to say on this topic, but I think that was a really good introduction to due diligence. Thank you so much, Brittany, for sharing this information. You think we should go ahead and now transition over to our entertainment topic for the week? You're welcome. And yes, let's do that. Okay. So we debated internally about what our first topic should be. There's so many topics that we want to discuss and focus on. However, now that we've passed through our Halloween season, we're back moving into the holiday season, we decided that it would be fun to think kick things off with something that Brittany is a really big fan of. Drum roll. Holiday lights. Um, I... I'm obsessed with holiday lights. I I think when I think of winter holidays and just this time of year, it's so magical and exciting. And even though it might be, you know, 80 degrees outside, you just want to feel cozy and, and warm. And part of that I think is like bundling up and, or, you know, bundling up and sweating and driving around, looking at lights, finding places where you just can get into that holiday spirit. I mean, I, I think Charlotte is just one of the best places to be for, you know, any sort of seasonal light. We're just such an amazing and diverse community. And of course, we're home to Christmas Town, USA. (laughs) So when we moved here in 1990, that was the ultimate destination. Oh, it's incredible. I feel like it could just be a line right out of like a Hallmark movie. Um, It is, in fact, the first place to mention in what I will call our top five holiday light experiences. So number one, it's McCaddenville, right? 100%. McCaddenville is 20 minutes outside of Charlotte. It's in Gaston County, actually. Um, And it's this long-running holiday light extravaganza. It's actually a a community of homes. And it's part of the HOA. If you buy in this community, you know that you've got to be a part of this. You better be festive. Um, It's open from December 1st through December 26th, every single night from 5.30 um, through 10 p.m. And it is, it's honestly such a sweet, special experience. I remember like driving through McCaddenville, sitting in this slow moving line of cars, driving through the town and seeing the entire community lit up. 
We go almost every year, and some years we drive through. A lot of people will drive through. I know the years I was pregnant, we definitely drove because I did not want to walk. Um, it's fun to do that and listen to holiday music and kind of see the lights. But it's also really fun to park and get out of the car and walk. It's there's a lot of cute little shops. It's it's crowded, so you're it's just really festive because you're walking around with different people. Everybody likes to dress up in holiday stuff and. You know, you're getting hot chocolate at one of the cute little shops while you're walking and looking at all the lights. I just think it's so remarkable how this town has really embraced the spirit with this sense of community to just create something so magical. Like I'm telling you, it's like you feel like you've been dropped into like a holiday movie. My kids love it. I mean, but the best advice I can offer is to pack snacks because some nights, I mean, that traffic backs all the way up onto 85 on the highway. The more prepared for the drive you are, the better. Like I said, it's it's not far outside of Charlotte, but there is going to be traffic. So prepare for that. Um, all right. The next holiday light experience we're going to talk about is the Speedway Christmas. Oh, we did that a couple of years ago. Yep, it's one of my favorite things to do in Charlotte because, again, it's not far, but it's kind of like this, it, it has a really big impact. It feels like you've you've had to go far to get this kind of experience, but you don't. It's open from November 18th um, through January 8th, every day of the week, except for Christmas Eve. Um, the price is $30 per car if the Christmas Village is not open, and then $40 per car if the Village is open. And the Village is adorable. Um, there's all these cute little vendors, food, entertainment. They even had like a petting zoo one year. Um, it's so good that you almost forget. You, like I said, you just drove through like, you know, a four mile long drive through the concourse that has more than 800 displays, some of which are more than like eight stories tall. They're, they, you know, they go along to different holiday music. It's a real show. I remember that when we were there, they were also showing a movie one night. Yes. So that's another really adorable thing. They also have movie nights. Um, they get displayed on the 16,000 square foot Speedway screen. Um, and it is just like a great experience. And honestly, one of the only drive-throughs I'm really aware of in the area. So you can drive all through the course, see the lights, and then you park and you hang out, you know, you pack snacks or get snacks at the village if it's open. And then you, you watch the movie. One of my favorite spots in the entire area is Daniel Stowe Botanical Gardens. I hear about this every year and I'm embarrassed to say I have not yet been there. So I'm gonna have to put that on my list for this year. So what makes this such a cool experience is that you're actually walking through the Botanical Gardens. However, it's just lit up. They have all these amazing displays, tons of lights and activities, including food trucks, s'mores, marshmallow roasting, lots of different beverage options. That sounds so good. I really want to try that um, this year. I really do. Is it free or do you have to pay? It's not. It's $20 an adult. Children are $10 and then kids under two are free. I obviously don't have kids under two anymore. <laughs> it's open from November 25th until December 31st, Wednesday through Sunday. All right. What about the Whitewater Center? Have you guys ever done the lights there? No. How is it? So in previous years, it's been a really great destination because they've got like the ice skating rink set up. However, this year they're adding an entire new attraction. So they've got a 600 foot suspension bridge or 600 foot suspension bridges, and they've got 50 illuminated displays that will be integrated into the bridges. Do you need a special ticket for that one? So you can pay your $6 per car parking fee like normal, um, but I'm pretty sure the ice skating, you're going to need a separate activity pass for that. But you can just go and walk around like you would at any other time without doing activities. Right at the end of the pandemic, we took the kids to Carowinds for Winterfest for the first time. It was super bright. 
it is a really cool experience too. And we actually did this last year. Um, it has a million lights, there's live music, there's displays. You also are riding all of the rides. So it's a really fun way to experience the park in the evening, especially after coming out of Scarewinds phase for, for Halloween. You know, you still get to go at night, um, but it's it's kind of decorated to give you that winter holiday magical feel. Winterfest is definitely something I'm a little bit more into than Scarewinds. I, I don't want to pay to be frightened. No, there's nothing relaxing about being chased around by a chainsaw to me. I know you're also a big fan of driving through some neighborhoods in Charlotte. And we have some like legendary homes and neighborhoods that just go all out with holiday lights. I absolutely love seeing like people go all out in their own neighborhoods and at their own house. Like I love seeing people festive and in the holiday spirit. And there are some really fantastic communities that have set an incredible standard over the years. You know, I don't think I should give out any specific addresses, but I would recommend doing a quick search online because I promise you those those will come up. Um, I normally like to explore the Montebello neighborhood in Charlotte. Um, they do a really great job of raising money for charity. Um, there's some homes in Sherwood Forest, Hillside Avenue and Myers Park, and then also the Berwick community. There are so many creative people that now have like these custom light shows. You can park and listen to music and watch like a synchronized show to music. hundred percent. It's it's really amazing what people are able to do on their own now. Like it would be really an interesting rabbit hole to explore and go down and maybe like turn my house into something to rival the Griswolds on Christmas vacation. I'm sure your wife would love that since we all know you would not participate in doing any of the work either. <laughs> okay, that's a valid critique. I, maybe I shouldn't have this conversation with someone who knows me that well. Yeah, hire it out. Well, I think my favorite thing with holiday lights in general is just driving through Myers Park. Well, first of all, driving through Myers Park and exploring Queen's Road during a holiday or not during a holiday is amazing because these homes are so to die for. But seeing them lit up is just another level. Completely. I mean, it's just... It's it's the best place to be in town, right? It really is. It's like quintessential Charlotte. I love that. And I think that's a perfect place to wrap this up. Brittany, this was like really fun. So much fun. Well, this is great information. Thank you to Brittany Osborne, my guest. Thank you for having me. So that concludes this first episode of our new podcast. I want to thank my business partner, Brittany Osborne, for joining me. I'm excited about this adventure and hope you'll join us for another episode on our podcast.